Hello everyone and welcome to another Charity Chat podcast. I am today's host, Osman Mughal. I hope that you're enjoying our weekly episodes that are currently running to ensure that we are discussing the issues that matter to our sector in light of the COVID-19 pandemic. Before we get into the podcast, I just wanted to give a quick mention that I understand it's been a challenging time for our sector in recent weeks and I hope that everyone is keeping well, safe and you all have established a routine that works for you. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking with not one, but two very special guests, Aisha Gardner and Kadra Abdinasir from Charity So White. You may remember a few weeks ago, we spoke with Charity So White and our listeners and we enjoyed the podcast so much that we have invited them back again. Welcome to the show, Kadra and Aisha. How are you both? Hello. Good, thank you. Good. Yeah, How are you guys thank keeping you. with COVID-19 and working from home? Yeah, it's not been too bad, um, fully kind of adjusted and accustomed now to the new normal um, that we find ourselves in. But yeah, the power of technology is keeping us all connected and keeping the campaign um, full scenes ahead, I would say. Yeah, yeah, it's, it took a little bit of time to get used to, but um, lots of virtual Zoom calls, um, both through work and, and as a campaign, which is, uh, which is great. So just in order for the listeners to get a little bit of information about Charity So White, I know we've done the episode a couple of um, episodes ago, but just tell us a little bit about yourself, your roles within the organisation um, and Charity So White a little bit more in general, if those people haven't listened to the episodes a couple um, of weeks ago. Yes, Charity So White is a campaigning group uh, of 15 individuals working in and around the charity sector um, with uh, an aim to root out racism within the sector. Um, I, I mean, we all work quite flexibly as a campaign at uh, being volunteers. So the focus and our roles within the work kind of changes on the demand and, and um, what we're looking to focus on as, as a campaign. But my day job is PR and comms. So a lot of the work that I do as part of the campaign is, is our media outreach um, work but it is very flexible and moving depending on the focus. Hi, so um, yeah, I'm Kadra and also one of the organisers on the Charity So White Committee. Um, my main job is in mental health policy and research on children and young people. And on the campaign and more recently, I've been working with the team on the COVID um, racial injustice live paper um, that we're gonna to talk to you a bit more about today. Um, and also um, facilitating some conversations with funders around how they can take forward some of our key messages from the paper. Brilliant, sounds really good. And, and what made you interested in joining an organisation like Charity So White? What were your motivations and passions behind that? Um, Aisha, if you want to go first. Racial injustice has always been an interest of mine. Um, I think particularly upon entering the working world and um, seeing the diversity of particularly senior leaderships um, amongst charities. It's something that I've always been acutely aware of and came across the campaign when they launched in response to uh, citizens advice training materials, which um, was racist and offensive to a number of people. Um, I wanted to get involved straight away. I work in comms for my day job so a, a, a digital and social media led campaign really excited me um, and I yeah met the team full of enthusiasm lots of like-minded individuals looking to kind of shake things up within the sector so couldn't, couldn't say no to, to getting involved. 
Um, I just think I'd say, so I've worked in the charity sector for the last eight years, um, and I'm really passionate about trying to make the charity sector an attractive place to work for people of colour, because I think often in our communities, people think you don't really get paid enough or you don't get to do interesting work when you work in the charity sector. Um, and I think it's also really important that, you know, I've seen like numerous charity-led programmes that have been ineffective because they haven't really centred lived experience particularly people of colour in their work um, and I thought that as like one of the aims of the campaign really spoke to me in terms of like trying to you know really transform the way the sector works in the future and just make it a lot more effective. And I think that you've hit the nail on the head there, Kajwa, when you speak of lived experience. I think that's so important because there's lots of stereotypes or assumptions um, that people come when they talk about um, this type of issue. And in many ways, these types of discussions are often um, left you know, at the end of meetings or not really considered important because um, they're sometimes so difficult to address. And I think having lived experience and being honest and open with one another is which is what we're trying to do with this podcast and this, this episode is to shine a light on issues like this. So I, I definitely agree with your point around lived experience and making sure that um, we provide you know, a range of different views because I think there is an assumption that lived experience is only, you know, is only that particular individual, whereas it's the mm-hmm. whole, you know, being a person of colour, you know, you, you know, if you're black or Asian um, or you're from the LGBTQ plus community, there's different views within that community as well. There's not just only one holistic yeah. view. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really important as well. Um, yeah. So I just wanted to touch on, on the paper that you um, spoke about a little bit earlier. Can you just tell us a little bit about the paper itself and what you see as the vision and mission of that paper? So I, I guess I'd like to start by just making a quick point on uh, language that we use in the paper. Um, we've chosen to use the term uh, BAME, Black and Minority Ethnic Groups, um, but very much recognise the limitations of that. So we use that because of the existing data um, that's out there, but we know it's by no means the perfect language. So in this conversation, we'll use it. But as, as you've just mentioned there, there are um, different experiences. Coronavirus is disproportionately impacting communities and groups within that in different ways um, and so we, we do try to counter that within our report um, by kind of drilling down the evidence and, and how it's impacting specific groups um, but essentially we launched uh, racial injustice in response to COVID-19 about six weeks ago um, it basically collates data from before uh, coronavirus and, and the data that we're getting through now and, and finds that uh, BAME communities are going to be hit hard, both in the immediate and long term, um, by COVID-19. So I suppose racial, um, existing racial inequalities have been deepening for years under austerity and are only going to be further compounded unless the government, civil society and funders urgently recognise and prioritise racial justice at the heart of the response. So that's really why we put together the report, we, we recognised that this was going to be an issue at the very start of, of um, coronavirus kind of developing um, in the UK. And we wanted to flag that to the charity sector and make some clear recommendations for them as to how they could best respond to, resp- to support um, our communities. Within the report, we um, identified 
five key areas um, that we're particularly concerned about. So I'll quickly run through those five areas just, just to provide a little bit of background. Um, the first one is health inequalities. So that's, um, you know, BAME groups remain overrepresented in those at risk as, as identified by the government, um, but also that they may not have the access to the same quality of healthcare um, due to issues like postcode lottery or, or, or language barriers. The second issue is emergency measures legislation. So that's the lack of guidance around these emergency measures that are coming in, such as police powers or school closures that we've already seen are leading to uh, local variation and disproportionate impact on BAME communities. Third one is risk of destitution. So that's um, the BAME communities are overrepresented in those key workers categories. And that includes, yes, the NHS, but also those most likely to volunteer on frontline, um, those in grassroots organisations within charities, those you know, working in supermarkets and those more low paid roles. Um, and they're also overrepresented in the low income groups. So this is particularly problematic when we're looking at employment, self-employment and the increased risk of financial uncertainty. Our fourth area is hostile environment. So that's particularly that no recourse to public funds, uh, which is preventing migrants from accessing basic rights during coronavirus. Um, and the fifth and final area that we've that we've kind of um, spotlighted is protection enforcement. And so that's our concern around this increase in domestic violence, uh, the rights of people who are currently in prison or detention. Um, and another example is, for example, the increased attacks on East Asians. So we've kind of gathered data from all of these five key areas, brought them together in a report and have outlined some key recommendations for the sector. Should I say a few points also just to add on that? Um, yeah. um, what's really unique about the paper is that it's a live paper as well. So we update it weekly and we have a call out for kind of new intelligence and evidence um, from you know our supporters and followers and partners and we, we update that continuously so that it's relevant the recommendations speak to what's going on um, around us at the moment thank you very much for providing that breakdown and I think what we'll do from our side is make sure that we um, put the link up on our website so people can have access to that paper um, and as you say it's um, you know updated weekly so I think that's really important and so it's kept up to date given the COVID-19 pandemic and things are always changing so we'll do that from our side and it seems from touching on those five points you know you mentioned health inequalities and other inequalities in there there is an aspect of structural and institutional barriers so these are very much endemic long-term issues how do you see charity so white as an organization aiming to overcome those barriers or empowering people from the BAME background in order to ensure a level playing field um okay so drawing on um some of the lessons learned from crises like Grenfell and also the recent Windrush scandal um, we thought it was really important to kind of use the insight and intelligence we've gathered to develop a set of principles that guide charity sector funders and even government um, in you know on how they can help mitigate against um, some of those widening inequalities um, so I can talk you through them. We've got five because, you know, five seems to be a bit of a magic number for us <laughs> at Charity So White. Um, 
So the first one is around um, using this as an opportunity and a time to really address inequalities in our sector. We shouldn't have to wait for inquiries to come out two to three years later to tell us what we should have done. I think there's enough evidence and understanding and really heartfelt stories that we see almost every day now in the press. Um, that should really prompt us to, to reflect, look inwards and take action now. Um, the second one is around the sector acknowledging the power they hold. Um, so they are very, very powerful um, and they should use this opportunity to really amplify and empower BAME communities um, and also BAME-led organisations. The third one is around actively valuing um, lived experience um, and particularly those that are deemed, again, quote unquote, at risk. For us, I think, you know, we really try and stay away from that rhetoric that communities are hard to reach. There's actually institutions that are hard to reach. Um, and now more than ever, you know, it's really difficult to kind of engage communities in our work, which is why we need to prioritize it um, during this time. The fourth one is around trusting the BAME-led voluntary sector. Um, so there aren't many of them to begin with, but the work they do is really, really important and specialist. But recent you know, evidence is suggesting that they're really struggling to remain open. Um, so it's really important that one of our principles within the sector is that we support our BAME um, colleagues in that sector. Um, and then the last one is around recognizing and supporting um, people of color who are staff and volunteers. Um, again, we know that um, coronavirus is having a disproportionate impact on people of color, which will then affect employees within the sector and their families, but also those that we work with um, and volunteers. So we, we mustn't forget about volunteers because I think the sector is really relying on volunteers at this time. Brilliant. So in terms of, you spoke about a number of points that really interested me. And I've been thinking about this issue since the COVID-19 pandemic and how BAME communities can be better represented in our sector and outside our sector as well. And some arguments that I've heard say that COVID-19 has presented problems that we've never seen before um, in terms of the size and the scope. And it's going to have significant consequences for months and years to come. So why is it now important to challenge these issues? Why not wait for another time when it's all blown over and we're back to normal as it were? Why now? Um, I would say um, the crisis has really magnified existing inequalities. Um, so it hasn't necessarily created new ones because um, these have already been there. But I think the response from the government is really now you know, it's, it's so powerful in so many ways because they're really starting to realise all of the issues we've had in our health services, in our welfare system, and really protecting people who have been struggling, um, you know, due to the effects of austerity. Um, but we also know that when the immediate crisis ends, it's likely that, you know, we'll have a, a bit of an economic um, crisis on our hands, which will further kind of um, widen inequalities. But if you take one area, for example, education, we know that um, um, BAME young people, for example, have already been facing um, prejudice, bias in the education for such a long time. Um, this has had a significant impact on their attainment and their you know, onward journey to work and further education and higher education. And like now with the um, lockdown, closing schools, 
we're, we're really fearful that there'll be a widening of that kind of attainment gap. Um, and it's, it's really not clear or good enough, some of the government's suggestions around, you know, using predicted grades, because some of the young people we've spoken to um, have been working so hard over the last few months to, you know, really increase um, their chances of getting, you know, better grades. So they feel really concerned about, you know, their teacher who they don't really get along with or suspect that their teacher is racist is going to be the person who determines the outcome of their education, um, you know, in secondary school. So those are some of the examples. And we actually think, you know, it will lead to a generation of young people who are going to face the effects of this, unfortunately, because, you know, we have such rigid systems already around employment and university that mean, you know, their access to those opportunities will be limited unless the government takes action now to try and mitigate against some of that. So there were some suggestions around, you know, offering additional funding so that pupils can take on private tutoring to keep up. And those are the types of initiatives that I would say would really welcome um, from this government. And I think, Kadra, you're absolutely right when you speak about dealing with this issue now. I just wanted to put the question because I have heard that argument before. And I think, especially in some organisations, senior management teams are so focused on the here and now that, and this may not even be a conscious decision, but they're just focusing on the issues that their organisations face now. And they're not, of course, they're still looking to the medium and long term, but they have less... Um, kind of focus on it for obvious reasons and I think the way you've explained and articulated that the decisions we make today is going to impact our future generation um, and our sector as well it's going to shape our sector because this COVID-19 pandemic is not just going to be um, the impact is not just going to be felt in 2020 it's going to be felt you know in the years to come and I think that we can no longer kick the football down the road anymore I think it's time that we stand up and we say enough's enough um, and we give everybody the right opportunities um, and an equal opportunity to advance their career. Because we know that the landscape, so I work in fundraising. So as an example, we know that the donors and trust and foundations, um, individual givers, the way they the demographic is changing. So if organizations are not willing or able to meet and change, they will never be able to in the next three, four, five years to be able to respond to that change and they'll always be behind the curve. So I think it's very important about what you said and very impactful about having the change right now. And, and there's no better way um, to um, shake up the establishment. Um, and the best way to do it is in a crisis because all, all, all things are up for grabs. You, you've kind of already touched on the impact of COVID-19 on BAME communities. Aisha, I just wanted to give you the opportunity to touch a little bit more on that. Yeah, um, well, I suppose ultimately it, it leads to death. We're already, we're already seeing that from the data that's come out already, um, to be honest. So I think um, our report does focus heavily on the social and economic issues that are leading to that. Um, this growing debate within the health um, sector as well as, 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 to, as to what might be impacting it, but it's, it's, it's multi-issue, it, it, it links across social, economic, um, it's intersecting. Um, yeah, that's kind of 
the impact. Um, our report outlines kind of the heightened exposure um, factors. So for instance, um, the top 10 areas in England that are being hit hardest by COVID-19 are all in London, mm. um, where 40% of the population are from uh, black minority ethnic groups. 60% um, of all British Jews live in or around London. Um, and the government have also um, confirmed that overcrowding in houses is far more likely to pose issues for Bain communities. So 30% of the UK Bangladeshi population are considered to be living in um, overcrowded houses um, compared to 2% of the white British population. Um, but also in addition to that, those, those factors that I think have been quite heavily covered uh, by the media and spoken about by the government, there's also um, issues such as food poverty, uh, precarious work, um, hostile environment, which again have all been deepened under austerity and all pose um, increased risks for, for vein groups um, and ultimately increases their risk of contracting uh, COVID-19. And you've touched on a number of key issues there. Of course, and we've discussed throughout this conversation so far that there's so many systemic issues that we need to address. My question is, what are your priorities within the next couple of months? COVID-19 pandemic is a very much a live issue and any organisation that is genuinely wanting to overcome these barriers needs to have a priority list because there's so much, I mean, where do you start? So what would be your key priority areas going forward in the next couple of months, but then also looking a bit medium and longer term? Yeah, um, okay, so I can say we are doing quite a, a lot of reactive work. Um, so, you know, things like responding um, to government and parliamentary inquiries um, to kind of highlight the evidence we found and to kind of, you know, continue to shine a light on the racial inequalities agenda within um, the response to COVID. Um, we are also speaking at like multiple conference, virtual conferences, I should say, not face-to-face, -face, um, and uh, uh, using our kind of, um, our PR with Aisha over here to kind of try and reach various different platforms. But I would say our main priority at the moment is trying to ensure that the emergency funding that is being allocated to the charity sector is equitably distributed. Um, so we're we've been really concerned by research that's been published earlier this week by the Uvele Initiative that shows that nine out of ten charities, BAME-led charities, are due to close um, shop within the next three months without additional resources. Um, and some of the challenges these organisations have faced is, you know, years and years of historic underfunding people not really prioritizing the issues they work on because they're not seen as, you know, politically appealing. It's not sexy to work in, you know, violence against women's sector or refugee sector. These are not the areas that, you know, trusts, foundations, government funding, you know, really want to prioritize in their kind of list of priorities. Um, and so we've been really pushing on this relentlessly over the last few weeks. And we have an open letter that's been signed by, I think, just over 90 different um, individuals and organisations um, with the key ask in there that around 20% of the funding um, that is being targeted at the sector 
is ring fenced for BAME-led organisations. And I'd say we're really clear that it's not just about organisations who work with BAME communities, but BAME-led specifically, because those are the ones that we know are at risk. Um, and many of them have already, you know, long, fruitful, trusting relationships with the communities that we're talking about. Um, and then the second key ask within that is that there is like a race equality expert, two race equality experts who sit on the decision making boards for how these funding, um, these funds will be distributed. Um, and so I think I can say, you know, it's been really well received. We've had, you know, really powerful organisations like Akivo and the Institute of Fundraising who've signed up to our letter. It's gaining a lot of momentum. We've been having conversations with funders around how they can take forward these recommendations. Um, and hopefully in the coming weeks, we'll have some positive, fingers crossed, um, announcements around that. Yeah, I would just add to that um, that our, our open letter is the first step. Uh, we, by no means, think that this is going to fix the institutional racism and inequalities that run within the charity sector. Um, but we really felt like off the back of the report which we produced, we needed something um, to try and support those working on the front line with AIM communities. Um, so there's much broader conversations to be had further down the line around recovery, uh, long-term racial equality and the powers that currently exist within the sector. Um, we want to continue having those conversations when the time is right, but in the immediate, we're, we're, we're speaking to funders and asking them to, to centre BAME communities in their response and in their distribution of, of their funds. You mentioned about working with different organisations there and other organisations that are working on this issue as well, so the Ubele initiative. And I did come across them um, a few days ago as well. And I know that they're keen to have a government inquiry into the issues that we've spoken about today. My question is around what other organisations are you in contact with, working with, to ensure that this is a more of a holistic approach in the way that you target and address the issues that we've already spoken about? Okay, um, yeah, so you mentioned Ubele over there. Um, we're also working with Voice for Change England. Um, which is um, one of the kind of key advocacy organisations for BAME issues and organisations. Um, we've been in discussions with um, NCBO as well, just to kind of think about what messages could be circulated to the sector more broadly. Um, and yeah, are having ongoing conversations with them as they are also involved in the kind of emergency funding scheme from the government. Um, and just more broadly, we've had quite a lot of interest um, from other organisations thinking about, you know, how they can dedicate and target their resources, you know, for BAME communities um, that they work with. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it's been a really busy few weeks full of meetings. Um, but yeah, the main sort of important conversations for us at the moment really is that, you know, working with funders um, and, you know, it can be a bit of a domino effect when you get the larger funders committing to it, you will start to see, you know, all the kind of other trusts and foundations getting on board. But um, yeah, we are continuing the fight to try and convince them around um, th this recommendation. Yeah, I would also add, uh, 
we work closely with Future Foundations UK as well, who are uh, a BAME-led, BAME-focused um, organisation. Um, and yeah, just to echo what Kat was said, our focus with funders has been on the big ones, um, particularly uh, yeah, National Lottery, uh, National Emergency Trust and Comic Relief. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's really important to have getting those on board because I attended the trust conference um, last month and the National Lottery Community Fund chief um, executive spoke at the event and she was saying that part of the Change Collective programme that the Institute of Fundraising is working on, how they're taking the National Lottery Community Fund, that is, they're taking a lead in addressing some of these issues and what they're seeing is um, more organisations following the same path in terms of having more representation in terms of their funding and who, whom it goes to. And I think that's really important to get the big players involved so the sector follows suit. So we had somebody from a local foundation talking about um, equality, diversity and inclusion um, and the impact around that and the importance that funders get around that, almost forcing organisations to be more inclusive um, and be um, and acting and making sure it's part of the criteria of the foundation or trust in question to make sure that their funding goes to inclusive projects um, and you know is more diverse etc so I think that's really important about getting the big players involved. Yeah we're very pleased that um, Institute of Fundraising and Akivo have both signed our open letter both wrote blogs off the back of it as to why they felt it was important and really um, leading the way um, in, in signing that quite soon after soon after we released it and we hope that others will follow. Brilliant. So we just finished talking about working with organisations across the sector um, in order to ensure that this issue is tackled at root and I just wondered what examples do you have um, around things that have impacted the work of Charity So White. So are there any areas of best practice that you're most proud of in, in the way that Charity So White have influenced or just wider changes that you've seen across the sector? Yeah, um, I can say, um, you know, the campaign has sort of spearheaded a, a larger conversation within the sector around tackling institutional racism and really holding the mirror up to themselves and leading these conversations. I think, um, you know, we always, make this point about you know it's it's been too long that the charity sector's been hiding behind good intentions um but actually if you look at the data in terms of things like diversity and inclusion the charity sector actually lags behind you know um the civil service and the public sector it lags behind the private sector and that's just not really good enough because our values and principles as a sector is really rooted in equality um but that's not really reflected in our, you know, who we are in the sector and the work that we do. Um, so we've had really, you know, hard, difficult, but open and honest conversations with people in the sector. And we have started to see some changes. So, you know, a lot of organizations have started to prioritize the recruitment of people of color on their board of trustees, because they realize now that at that very executive level, there wasn't representation or there wasn't the voice of people of color informing decisions um, within their organization um, so that's been really positive to see um, but yeah in over the last couple of months we just felt we really needed to divert our attention and focus to the covid response 
Um, but the, the long-term aims of the campaign is really to address it at the top um, of charities, um, but also to really work with, support and empower people of colour within the sector to know that they're not alone, they're not the only people dealing with, you know, some of the racial discrimination that they might be at work. Um, often, you know, people feel they can't speak out or raise these issues within their organizations for fear of rebuttal from their organization, or that they feel um, it kind of prevents them from progressing within the sector. Um, so we just want to say we're, we're here for you, um, contact us. Um, and we'll share our insight, our experience. And, you know, if you want us to you know, anonymously disclose, we can kind of facilitate those conversations in your organization. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, we don't want to own the burden of tackling institutional racism in the sector. It's really up to leaders in the sector and people working with it, within it to kind of take it forward. So we're just here to, um, I'd say, convene and catalyze a discussion around racism and then you know hopefully people can take it from there yeah um and i'd also add you know something that i think we're really proud of is the conversations and relationships that we've built with senior leaders um getting this uh higher up on their agenda um and i think as a campaign starting on social media we love nothing more than when other people kind of use Charity So White through something they've seen or through their work and it going further than, you know, the direct stuff we're doing, it being picked up more widely um, and this, the sector almost owning Charity So White for themselves. Yeah, yeah so I would say just to kind of add, you know, we don't want to bring down the sector and it's not like a name and shame um, kind of game that we're playing here. We all work within the sector. We do want the sector to be effective and to be, yeah, a really welcoming place for people of colour to work in and, um, you know, and also for the communities that we serve, for them to, to for us to be doing right by them um, and giving them a voice. I think that's a really important point around why we're having this conversation and why we want to affect change. It's because of the people that we serve, because we know that you get better informed decisions around um, people from being backgrounds. For example, I work for a children charity and the vast majority of um, children and young people that we serve are from a Bain background. However, it would be, it would look odd if the, the the majority of the senior leadership team, for example, is is from a particular part of society that does not understand the challenges, uh, even cultural sensitivities of people that um, that we're trying to serve. So I think it's about having that wider conversation and being very open and honest about it. Completely, it's a topic that uh, is often difficult to talk about, and I suppose just putting racism on the agenda and it being more openly talked about is a huge success that is only going to lead to really positive impact, as you say, for the communities that we, that we work with. Absolutely. And I think it's also about just normalising the conversation and allowing it to be so normal that you can have this conversation over a cup of tea or at your desk. It doesn't have to be, you have to book a meeting room and have a conversation about it because you care for what people around you might think or say. I think it's about normalising that conversation, hopefully through what the work that Charity So White is doing, normalising this discussion and 
you know being and you know being very open and honest about it and about seeing what diff what different points there of views there are because you don't want yeah. these conversations to be had behind closed doors mm-hmm. because if you know and understand where people's worries concerns are you're able to address them whereas if those conversations are only had behind closed doors we're not we're not having an honest conversation because we're not including those in, in the discussion and I think that's really important too yeah, yeah. and that's really how the campaign has been such a success starting on social media and, and starting that conversation through a forum that really is an open conversation as we would like to take in, into the workplace. Yeah. yeah, I think that, yeah, the stories, the conversations are just so much more powerful. I think for far too long, you know, we've had all the data we needed around diversity and inclusion and we've just not acted on it. And I think that's because the kind of emotional side of it is so detached from the data that actually these are real people, real stories that sit behind the data. Um, And once you hear it, how can you really argue with that? Absolutely. And taking the conversation more in terms of medium and longer term, in terms of where Charity Soil wants to go. And of course, I think that's, as you've already mentioned, dependent on how the sector responds to to this conversation what do you see as the key opportunities and challenging challenges over the next few years because i assume there will be lots of opportunities to tackle um, and have discussions about what we've spoken about today but there will also will be a lot of challenges too so what do you have to say say on that um i think i think there's going to be a lot of our role involved in the recovery of coronavirus i know that a lot of you know, we're thinking long term, but ultimately there's such a unique crisis going on at the moment that we see ourselves working with the sector in in the recovery and I guess reshaping how the sector can rebuild. Um, if in if in if now during during the crisis we can start conversations on racial justice and really support the communities that are disproportionately affected, and and shift the power dynamics, potentially that could mean long in an ideal world for us long term that that stays down that path and through the recovery it's still a focus after this is all over it's still a focus and the sector could rebuild on that trend yeah and i would say that you know post um the immediate crisis obviously resources are going to be extremely constrained um, and that might lead to like further kind of competition within the charity sector and i think you know we have we could play a role around really fostering the collaboration that we've started to build through this piece of work um, because there is power in numbers and actually you know coming together as a sector to really be demanding of government to do better for communities is something we've started to see as a result of the crisis that I think should long continue after this Um, we shouldn't you know as you know in an ideal world the charity sector wouldn't exist because services and society will be functioning in a fair and equitable way for everybody. Um, But unfortunately, we're here picking up, you know, some of the difficult areas in the slack that, you know, government isn't able to prioritise at the moment. Um, So that's why I think the kind of collaboration is going to be, and partnership working is going to be even more vital um, in the medium to long term within the sector. And if people are really interested about what they're hearing um, and it's kind of sparked something in them, 
what can they do? Because it seems to me from our conversation that Charity So What is very much a grassroots movement. It you know, exploded on social media, um, had a lot of press coverage, um, and now is almost a difficult part about the daily grind, about tackling those systemic issues as we've already discussed. So what, so for example, if there's an employee in the charity sector or a volunteer or somebody who feels passionate about this area and wants to help or support the cause, what can they do to do that? So part of our work is to support uh, individuals within organisations to mobilise um, and apply pressure um, from within. Um, so we're hosting a series of, of events over the next month to do that specifically around um, coronavirus response. So that's something they could do. Um, and additionally, um, our open letter is, is a direct call to arms um, as, a, as a direct response too. Yeah, um, and we're also always really keen to, for, for you know, people to share stories and evidence with us. Um, so if there are people interested in writing guest blogs for us, for example, about their experiences in the sector, we would always welcome that. Um, if they're interested also in volunteering for Charity So White, we do have like a ongoing um, recruitment cycle for volunteers to join the committee and, you know, help us in our cause. Um, so we'd always be open to that as well. And if people want to get you know, more information, where should they reach you? Your Twitter tags, Instagram? Yes, we're at Charity So White on Twitter. Yeah. Um, we've also got a fresh new website which one of our volunteers created John so uh, go on there via email as well um, we are all volunteers but we're all extremely passionate about this project and there's um, a lot of us so we all have our all individual Twitter accounts as well so there's many ways to reach us and we really love having these conversations with other people of colour and allies in the sector yeah and also we've got um a few webinars coming up um on covid to kind of unpack some of the themes that are emerging um, and we would really welcome people of color to join those kind of share their knowledge their experience and their reflections on our recommendations so we can point you to that as well if you want to share with your listeners yeah absolutely that'd be great if you can provide me the information i'll be more than happy to do that because i think that's the one way we're going to reach more people and have that conversation um, more openly. That's yes. actually fine. It was great to have you both so passionate and enthusiastic and knowledgeable about the topic, which is really important. I think that certainly you know comes across, and I think it engages people um, and even people that wouldn't normally listen to a subject like this. Um, and that's really important that we are the ambassadors of of this change, and the way we communicate yeah. and articulate ourselves yeah. is really important as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, it's been a it's been an absolute absolute pleasure. Um, yeah, and doing it via Zoom has been really interesting as well. So, yeah, absolutely <laughs> great. Take care, okay. both. Um, thank you so much for your time, and I'm sure we'll speak soon. Yeah, no speak worries. soon. Thank you. Bye. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. It was a pleasure to speak with Kadra and Aisha, who spoke passionately about the importance of ensuring and enabling a more diverse sector. Change that Charity So White is committed to lead, working with organisations, leaders, employees and volunteers. Naturally, we discuss the impact of COVID-19 
and how this is disproportionately affecting the BAME community. If we are to root out biases in our sector, there is no time like the present. Despite it being a challenging time for our sector, employees, volunteers and beneficiaries, we must not allow the current crisis to impede the progress that we have made on this issue. I would encourage everyone listening to this podcast to go to their website to find out the latest information, charitysowhite.org or their social media channels. If you have any feedback or ideas that you would like covered by us on Charity Chat, please get in touch. Thank you very much for listening. And that just leaves me to thank our corporate sponsors, Giant Squid Audio Lab, sponsoring our podcast kit, Magda Aksumit for our website design, RR Yard Photography for our pro bono images on our website, and Forrester Fools who have been playing throughout and are playing us out now. <laughs>